You don't have to be from south of the Mason-Dixon line to love that. It's great stuff. I'm going to encourage you to take out your Bible with you. Uh, If you have it with you this morning, go to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have one, you're going to see the verses up on the screen, or maybe you have it electronically, maybe you have it on your phone, or you're watching at home, and you can get your Bible out right now, Luke chapter 16. A couple things before we jump into that. Last week, we talked about these little booklets that we were giving out, and they took them all in the first service um, last week, and we ordered more in, and the good news for you is there's uh, over 100 of them that are still out on the information table right now, so you can pick one up when you want to. They're free, and it's called The World Religions Made Easy. It's talking about the 30 leading world religions, and it's just a very little thin quarter-inch booklet. It'll give you an idea of people in your life, what they think and what they understand and what they're thinking about God, and if you read through that, it perhaps will give you a capacity to speak into their life. And then this other announcement is for ladies. Ladies, a new women's study is starting on Tuesday of this week. It's a Lisa Tirka study. My wife, Lori, will be leading it, but Lisa will be teaching on video. Excellent study on the book of First Kings. Right, Monica? First Kings? Okay. First Kings, and that's Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening, or you can do it virtually at home. If you don't have a book or you haven't registered yet, you definitely want to get online on the New Hope website and sign up for that. And books are available on Tuesday as well. Books are available in the office. So I really encourage you ladies to be part of that and to jump into that study. This last one on Jude went really well, and now they're excited to jump into this one on 1 Kings. So I'm going to start you out this morning with a Bible verse before we pray. And I find it to be an anchor verse for what we're looking at this morning. This is our third week on the subject of hell. And I told you that this week would be a whole lot happier than last week was. And I'm looking forward to getting into the happy part with you. But it still kind of starts out a little dark and it ends happy. But I want to start you with this this anchor verse. Look with me on the screen at this. And it comes from John chapter 20, verse 29. It says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And that's Jesus speaking, and he's talking about you. He's looking forward in time to a period of time when people wouldn't know him physically on the planet. And there's individuals who would believe and yet did not see, didn't get to see Jesus, didn't get to see the miracles, didn't get to see the resurrection. And he's talking about you in the future saying, there's a group of people coming. We're going to be blessed of God because they believed without having seen. I want you to use that as an anchor verse this morning as we work through that. Carry that very crucial truth into this final section on hell. And before we go into that, I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, you know that the heaviness of this issue to us, we know that it's even heavier to you. And yet, we look forward to the joy that the story ends with. I pray that you would work through us right now, that we would be attentive to your word, that we wouldn't just hear the words, but we would actually heed the words. So God, as your word is opened up and you speak, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work, tenderizing us where we need to be tenderized, causing us to pay attention, keep us from having hard hearts or distractions. Use this time, Father, right now. Use it in our lives to equip us. That's what we're supposed to do, to be equipped in the church. So equip us now, Father. I pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. 
want you to step back to the first century with me. Jesus has Pharisees gathered around him. They're scoffing at him. He's been talking to them about money issues in their life and selfishness and self-righteousness, and they're thinking that they've somehow earned their position with God. And the first half of Luke 16 is indeed about that, and, and we looked at that in length over the previous month. But you come to this last half of Luke 16, and Jesus creates a story just for the Pharisees who are gathered around Him, and yet He projects it for everyone of all ages to be able to see what's going on behind the scenes. And that's where we find ourselves as He begins this story about a man in hell. I'm going to do something we don't characteristically typically do here at New Hope, which is I'm going to read through the whole story with you to start before we interpret the passage. So go with me, look on the screen if you want, or look in your own Bible, and here's the whole story in the way that Jesus told it. It starts with verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good, your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over for I, uh, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." But he said to them, to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And I need to remind you that the rich man is not in hell because he's rich. And the poor man does not end up in heaven because he's poor. You need to keep your framework in understanding that. And let's do a quick review of what we've looked at over the last two weeks. This story is addressed to people who are confident that heaven is waiting for them. They're confident to the degree that they believe they've earned their way to heaven. They believe that because of their lineage, that they're descended of Abraham, that because they've gone to church, if you will, all their life, that that's what's in store for them. And Jesus has designed this around these individuals. They believe that they've earned heaven. In context, it's a confidence that's possessed by most of the first century leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And they're not just religious, but extremely obsessive in their devotion to their religion. They know the Old Testament forward and backwards. It would actually shame you to realize how much they had memorized 
They could go from Micah all the way backward to Genesis, and I don't mean just by naming the books of the Bible. I mean the actual verses and can say them forward and can say them backward. They couldn't be a Pharisee if they couldn't do that. So Jesus has designed this story about a man who goes to hell, and it's absolutely jolting to anybody who listens to it, and it's designed that way because Jesus shares these parables to shock people. His use of the parables is not an afterthought, like an after-dinner party story that he wants to just entertain people. They're highly intentional. They're designed to shock people into reaction. So last week, we examined why he ended up in hell. Uh, Jesus, as you might have noticed, did not give us a list of immoralities. If you look at the story, you don't find him going through, well, he did this, and he did this, and he did this, therefore he got that. What is it that resulted in his condemnation then? Well, as we saw last week, he did one thing, and he did it very well. He neglected the things of God. Specifically, he neglected God's Word. And that put him in a place where he wasn't in a relationship with God. So let's go back to the conversation. This is an individual now as we pick it up mid-story. He knows that his torment is permanent. He has no hope whatsoever that it's ever going to change. And he knows his circumstances will not be altered. And so he begins to speak to Abraham this way in verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. And he's talking about Lazarus that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Why does he automatically assume that that's where his family is going to end up? Why is he of the mindset that that's where his brothers are headed? This first statement reminds us that you're conscious in hell, not unconscious, not sleeping, not unfeeling, but rather feeling. The Bible actually says there's no rest for those who are in hell. You look with me on the screen at Revelation 14, verse 11. It says this, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. You ever gone a period of time without any sleep? You know what that feels like. Even if you go during a night where you might sleep two or three hours during the night, you feel terrible the next day. You imagine going forever and ever, constant conscious awareness with no rest whatsoever. It's a relentless awareness, fully informed, fully active conscience. And in his case, with his very active conscience, he remembers his family. And he's remembering that they're lost. So this is now just not a story about one man. This is a story about a family. It's about his brothers and their destiny. And he knows that his brothers, just like him, they love money. And they have such a love for money that it changes their life. It, it changes what they do with their time. They're preoccupied with it. You get this as you read between the lines in this story. They're so preoccupied with the things of the world, they don't have time for the things of God. So as Jesus presents this story, they're anything but generous. They're anything but attentive to the poor. They have this issue in their life. There's selfishness. And I think we would all agree that selfishness is a sin. It's one of many sins. But selfishness is a sin. And an unforgiven sin will send you to hell. So he knows his brothers have this issue in their life. The amount of money you have won't put you in hell. But the neglect of God will do that. And that's where Jesus is going with this story. 
We've got somebody who's ignoring God. So this man in hell draws this conclusion. If they keep going this way, if they keep doing what they've always been doing, they're going to join me here. They're going to be coming here also. And he's also implying that those five brothers of his also knew Lazarus. And they obviously also neglected Lazarus. If that wasn't true, he wouldn't ask Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to go visit them. They obviously know who Lazarus is, that he died, and he thinks they'll be terrified if they hear from Lazarus. 29, verse 29, Abraham responds, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, meaning the brothers, let them hear them, meaning Moses and the prophets which tells me that this previously wealthy man also had the witness of scriptures. He had Moses and the prophets available to him. The family had a family Bible apparently available to them. They had the witness of scripture. So when Jesus says Moses and the prophets, it's an ancient way of referring to the Old Testament. And Jesus is teaching us that the Old Testament is enough to understand who man is before God. And Paul picks up on this. Paul's writing to a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy is leading a church. And Paul's writing him some instructions in the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and gives him instructions on how to lead his church. And this is what Paul writes. Look with me up on the screen, 2 Timothy 3.14. Continue, Timothy, in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, verse 15, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What are those? That's the Old Testament. From childhood, Timothy, you've known the Old Testament. You've learned these things. What does he say about them? They're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then comes that most famous verse. If you grew up in church, you knew it. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So you get this amazing response from Abraham. He says to the man in hell, they already have the scriptures just like you did. You had it available to you. You had the information. Let them hear them. Now, this phrase, hear them, is really, really important. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, and it's the word akuo. It's where we get the word acoustic from. We think of acoustic guitar we would think of acoustic sound waves. And that would be part of it, but the word akuo is the base, it's the root for listening, for hearing, but not just hearing, not just listening to acoustic rhythms. It's the base for heeding, for understanding. So when you look at the definition, you see that that's where it's going, to give audience, to understand. So here's the idea behind it. Listen with the idea of understanding. So Abraham could be saying it like this, let them hear them distinctly. You know what it's like to be in a conversation with someone who's not really listening to you, right? You can see it in their eyes. Women, you've had these conversations with your husbands, right? And, and, and not to be unfair, men, you've had these conversations with your wives, right? Okay, and, and we've all had conversations with children that way. My children, when they were little, used to grab me by the cheeks and pull my face back to stare me in the eyes, say, dad, you're not listening. They could tell. We all know what it's like when someone's not listening distinctly and paying attention. So Jesus, through this character Abraham in the story, is saying, let them hear with a heart, 
toward understanding what it says in Moses and the prophets. See, in the big picture of what's going on, remember the, the, the audience is the Pharisees, they're listening to Jesus tell this, and in the big picture, Jesus through Abraham is saying, there's only one thing that can avert the five brothers joining their brother in hell, and that is that they would hear the word of God, and not just hear it audibly, acoustically, but heeding it, meaning paying attention to it, and as a result, they would respond in faith believing what God had called them to. So God's telling the story, right? And God tells us if people do not listen to Scripture and respond, they will not be persuaded because the power is in the Word of God. Amen? That's where it's at. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. God says, my Word is alive and active and sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. I can do heart surgery on you. His word can penetrate like a scalpel. It pricks the heart. That's, that's why he says it's alive and it's active. So God's telling the story, and he says the power is in the scriptures. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, you, you have children in your world, teach them the word of God. Spend time with them. I started with my children when they were the littlest. Lori did the same thing with two, three, four years old. It's not too young for them to understand. You just read simple things to them. And at some point, they're going to ask questions. And when they ask questions, give the best answer you can. And if you can't come up with an answer, say to them and, and be willing to be humble enough to say, I don't know the answer to that. Let's find out together. Read the Word of God to them. Share the Word of God with the children in your world. Jesus is telling us the way to avoid eternal death and have eternal life is to listen to the message and believe the message. That's why I started out with John 20, 29. Blessed are they who believe and have not yet seen. That's what Jesus says about you. You know the word of God and you have believed and God considers you blessed as a result of that. See, the man in hell did not do that. He didn't listen to the scriptures. And he knows that his brothers won't either. So he keeps arguing with Abraham, verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See, the man in hell knows his family. We all have our social circle. We all have people we do life with and we hang out with and we connect with. But nobody knows us like our family. Nobody knows you like your parents or your siblings. Nobody knows you like your children. They know the good and the bad. Our family knows us, and this guy knows his family, and he knows from personal experience they do not take the Bible seriously because he didn't. And he knows his brothers will continue to refuse and will neglect the Word of God. So he says they've got to have something spectacular so he's persisting with Abraham. He's saying, no, Father Abraham, I just know. I just know if a dead person shows up at their door, then they're going to believe. Then they're going to be corrected in their thinking. That will do it. So clearly, we have here an individual with a religious mindset. Now, how do I know that? Well, because of the words that he used in his discussion with Abraham here. He's not only familiar with Moses and the prophets, Apparently, not only has a family Bible, he knows who Abraham is by recognition. He recognizes and begins this conversation. So what we have here is a person who has a church family. His, his family is a church family. 
His family is familiar with the books of God. They're familiar with the Old Testament. They have access to that. But furthermore, here's the giveaway. Not only do they know the Old Testament and they know Moses and the prophets and they neglect it, he uses the word repent here. And this is very specific in this conversation. So look with me closely on the screen. If someone goes to them from verse 30, from the dead, they will repent. Now follow this line of reasoning with me. If you believe in repentance, you believe sin is real. If you believe sin is real, you know what guilt is. So if you believe sin is real and you know what guilt is, that means you believe in a law. Because why else would you have sin and why else would you have guilt if you didn't believe that there was a law that was broken? So if you believe in a law, you have to believe that there is a source or an authority behind that law. In other words, a law giver. So this is an individual who knows that he knows that there is a holy God and that there is a God with holy commands. Therefore, this is a man who defines the violation of God's law as a violation which requires repentance, and that's why he's using that word. My brothers have something to repent of. This is a person who has a theology. Did you notice that there's a complaint buried within his comment to Abraham? And his complaint is this. There wasn't enough information available. If a miracle was done, if something spectacular was done, then they would believe. The reason that I'm here, the reason I've come to this place, as there has been insufficient data. He's implying I wouldn't be here if I'd had more proof. What my brothers need is more proof, and then they will believe. This is echoing everything that the Pharisees ever did with Jesus. What do they constantly push Jesus for? Show us a sign. Give us a sign. We want a sign. Show us something spectacular. Give us a, a sign from heaven, and then we will believe. Prove it. And we'll circle back to that in just a minute. So we have someone whose knowledge of sin is very clear. He's a person who believes in the need for repentance. Repentance of what, though? because Jesus doesn't list immoralities. You can read the story over and over, frontward and backward, and you won't find Jesus giving a list of the things this guy did. The only sin that shows up here is his indifference to Lazarus, which is selfishness, which is a sin to be sure. So someone could suggest, well, I know what's wrong with him. He's, he's got to deal with money. And the Bible says money is the root of all evil, right? Well, no, it's the love of money. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So if that's it, what's really going on here? Well, he didn't share. He didn't give everything that he had to the poor. You could push back, and I've had this conversation with individuals. Let's say if he'd given everything he had to the poor, would that automatically get him into heaven? No, that would be salvation based on works. Do you get heaven by giving away all your money to the poor? No. Well, then the poor would have a problem. 
then they would have to give away all their money before they could get into heaven. And, and then it becomes hot potato, like, you take it, you take it, you take it, right? So that can't be what's going on here. We know, according to the Word of God, that we are not saved by good works, right? We're saved so that we can do good works, not saved by good works. And it's crucial that you understand this as you work through this parable. So even if you give away all your money to the poor, even if you become the greatest philanthropist that has ever lived, it will not get you into heaven because salvation is not by works. Works are an indicator of your heart. It's just the the fruit of what's coming out of you. But being a generous sinner will not get you into heaven. You can't do enough good things to tip the scales in your favor. It's, it's crucial that you understand that. So Scripture says this in Ephesians 2.8, and I, I know you're, many of you are church people, and you were raised in church, and you know Ephesians 2.8. Just stay with me on this. Watch where this is going. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship. Hang on with me for a second. Verse 10 started out by saying, we are his workmanship, meaning this. If there is a work that saves you, it is God's work in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a work you've done, it's God's work in you. So if there's a work that's saving you, it's God working in you, and he's regenerating you. So that's why verse 10 finishes out this way. It says, we are his workmanship created by God in Christ Jesus for good works. So any person who ends up in hell is there because of sin. We would agree on that. And selfishness is at the core of all sin, because all sin is asserting someone's self above God. But in this parable, there's no monstrous sin mentioned. There's nothing that's shocking. There's no horrendous sin that sends him to hell. And Jesus purposely doesn't do that. If there was ever a place where he would do it, it would be this parable, but he doesn't do it. The Bible actually sin says that any sin deserves hell. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God according to Scripture. So here's a conversation I've had with individuals along this lines. Many will say it this way. Okay, if there's a hell, it's just for Satan and for the demons. God would never send people there. So I push back and I say, well, okay, um, what about Hitler? Does Hitler go to hell? Okay, well, yeah, Hitler. Hitler goes. Okay, well, what about Stalin? Stalin killed more people than Hitler. Okay, well, yeah, okay. Hitler, Stalin, all those are really horrendous people. So the assumption becomes you go to hell because you're really horrendous. And most people think this way. Most people think I'm more good than I am bad. I'm going to heaven because I'm better than Hitler. And hoping that they somehow can tip the scales in their favor throughout their life by doing enough good things. Except if Jesus was ever going to say anything, it'd be in this parable about this man's morality, and he doesn't say anything about his morality because the Bible shows us it's enough for him just to neglect God. 
just to pay no attention to the word of God and not put himself in the place where God can work through him. So the reason people go to hell is because they do not hear the word of God according to what Jesus is saying. In other words, heed it. And so Jesus is saying, you need to hear the word of God because the word of God is the place that shows you that you need a savior because we all have sin and we can't fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. So this parable is really about what you do with God's word. And that's why it's so crucial for churches to stick to the preaching of the scriptures. Where this fails is that people perish when churches stop teaching the word of God. Churches shrivel up and die when they stop accurately teaching the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we've got to stay with the word of God. So let's circle back now to end this. We've come to the last, last part of this conversation that's taking us three weeks to get through. And he says this in verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus wants us to get this issue. And so he really, really pushes this point. And he's saying, even a resurrection won't turn them to God. It's ironic. He's saying this just two months before he will be crucified and resurrected himself. And remember his audience. He's got the Pharisees gathered around him. He's telling this not only for their benefit, but for all of his listeners and for everyone through all ages to hear this because Jesus knows his audience. And he's emphasizing that miracles are evidence but only to those who have a believing heart. It's not evidence to somebody who has a hard heart. Miracles don't convince those whose hearts are so hard they refuse to be persuaded. So the Pharisees are just like this rich man's brothers. They want more evidence. They want more signs, if you will, and that's what this man's begging for from hell. They want signs before they will believe, and that's what the Pharisees constantly pushed Jesus on. Look with me at an example of this on the screen. Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, hear this. All the healings, the walking on the water, the feeding of the thousands, the casting out of demons, the restoring of eyesight, the healing of arms, all that was not enough. It wasn't enough for their hard hearts. So they constantly said to Jesus, show us a sign. And Jesus finally said to them, you want a sign? I'll give you the ultimate sign. Look with me on the screen. Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'll give you the sign of all signs. There'll be a resurrection of that one who's in the heart of the earth. He showed them so many signs. Jesus himself is resurrected, and still they refuse to believe. So how fantastic is it that Jesus included in this parable the reality that miracles don't save, miracles were given to confirm. 
given to confirm the authority of the one who's performing the miracle, but they cannot produce salvation. Only Jesus produces salvation. And it's done through the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The miracles don't do that. I've lost count of how many times I've had someone say to me over the years, if I just saw the things that Jesus did, then I would believe. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you wouldn't. It doesn't work that way. It's not true. That's why Abraham points him to the Old Testament. He says all, all the information that is needed is already available. So catch the irony of this. This one in hell has the same information that the Pharisees had, and yet he's saying, there's got to be a greater authority. There's got to be a greater authority than the Word of God. He's saying Scripture is not enough. They need more proof. So Abraham is left with this simple response in verse 31. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. A person rising from the dead can't convince people. So in reality, what they're saying is they're refusing to believe that they need to repent. What do your family members and friends in your social circle deal with on the issue of Jesus? It's not necessarily the belief that there was a resurrection. Did you know that well over 70% of Americans believe there was a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? That's not what they struggle with. They struggle with believing that they need to repent. The mindset of the Pharisees is alive and well today, and the mindset is this. I'm good. I'm good enough. I don't need a Savior to get into heaven. I'm a good person. If Hitler's in hell, then I'm definitely going to heaven because I'm not like Hitler. I don't believe I need to repent. So Jesus is saying if they don't believe what's written in the Word of God, it really reveals the heart. You reject the Word of God, you're revealing what your heart has, that not even a resurrection of someone who was dead, 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 like buried dead, will convince them. And I find great irony that Jesus is telling this because only weeks later, he's going to raise a real Lazarus from the dead. Not a Lazarus from the parable, but a Lazarus who is his friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, who happens to have the same name that was a really popular name in this period of time. And Jesus is just about to the point where he's going to raise that one from the dead. Watch how this unfolds with me. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. He's dead, dead, dead. And it says this, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, John chapter 11, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died come, came forth and bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What was the reaction of the crowd? Verse 46 tells us immediately people ran out and they began telling the Pharisees. Look on the screen. John eleven forty six. some of them went to the Pharisees, told them the things which Jesus had done, and what was the Pharisees' reaction? John eleven fifty three. So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. That's a hard heart. They've got a dead man walking around. His name is Lazarus. 
He's seen the other side. And they will not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So listen to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever read John chapter 12 this way. John chapter 12 obviously comes after the Lazarus resurrection. And Jesus says this, and he says it to our generation just like he said it to their generation. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world, and everyone who believes in me, and that's you, New Hope, that's you if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Amen to that, right? You're not in darkness. You're not blind. You can see the truth. May not remain in darkness, but watch. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's talking about his first coming. And then goes on to say, he who rejects me and does not receive my teaching has one who judges him, the Word, the Word of God. God the Son becomes Jesus the man and speaks the Word of God, and he says, the Word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. So Jesus not only raises others from the dead, he raises himself, and he says, more miracles are not what's needed. A repentant heart is what is needed. In the end, you and I know that we are by nature selfish beings. We have selfishness within us. We are sinful beings. What is the difference between us who believe we're going to heaven, and this one who's in hell. We, we understand that we can be saved. How are people saved? By hearing, akuo, the Word of God. What does the Word of God say to guarantee that you will be saved? Look at me on the screen, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what church? You will be saved. That's the Word of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you heard the Word, you believed the Word, and you acted on the Word. You believed the message, listened to the message, and responded to it. Because of who Jesus is, we who believe and respond are not only not going to hell, we get eternity in heaven. How great a deal is that? God's promise to you. This parable preaches, church. So if you examine your life this morning, maybe you're watching virtually, you're watching from the comfort of your home, or you're new to church, maybe you've never heard this stuff before. If you find yourself in this place where you examine your life and you come to the conclusion, I need that. I need that forgiveness of my sin. And you've come to the conclusion you don't yet belong to God, you can. Right now, you, you can tell God in the privacy of your own home or in the privacy of your own seat, tune me out and just start talking to God and say, I believe, I believe you'll forgive me of my sin. I want Jesus. Jesus, will you forgive me of my sin? Confess Jesus with your mouth. Believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So if, if that's you and you've done that, if you're certain that you're a daughter or a son of the King of Kings, God's word for you as you go out the door this morning is so hopeful and so beautiful and so stunning because God's word to you is that the righteous will shine forth as the sun one day. 
In Michigan, it's easy for us to picture cloudy days. We know what it's like outside right now. But you know on the other side of those clouds is a brilliant celestial body called the sun. It's obscured. God's Word says there's a day coming for you who are righteous, who believe in Jesus, that you're going to burst forth as the sun. There's a day coming. What a wonderful, spectacular change there is going to be in you because you don't shine right now. You're like the cloud in front of you. We can't see you as you will really be. What a wonderful, spectacular change. Your splendor will burst forth as the sun in all its brightness. Let me just show you the Word of God as we close. Two verses for you. The first one comes from Matthew 40, 24, 31. God will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And in that day, there will be no more evil. No evil people, no evil deeds, no evil thoughts. In the eternal kingdom of your loving heavenly Father, your loved ones in Jesus, your family members who have gone on before you are gonna join you and you guys are gonna shine like the brightness of the sun. That's what scripture tells us. Look at this from Daniel, Daniel 12, 3. You will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever and ever. So Jesus says, those ones, blessed are they who believe and have not yet seen. You feel blessed this morning? You should. You should feel encouraged in your heart. For one, that God took the blinders off you so that you could see the truth of his word, but also that you have a huge responsibility. The most merciful thing you can do is to live Jesus before your social circle, before your family members in such a way that they are attracted to ask you about Jesus. There's something different about you. And you can tell them. It's the most merciful thing that you can do to share Jesus with someone who is lost and doesn't know the way. I close by saying this. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Bring an end to this mess. But in the meantime, shine brightly, church. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you for these saints who are gathered together that we live with a living hope. We are not those who fear tomorrow because we know what our destiny is ultimately. And you are that living hope. So we can confidently say before our friends, we know what tomorrow holds. It holds an eternity for us. And we can only say that confidently, Father, because of Jesus, because of what he did for us on the cross and through the resurrection confirming that you accepted the sacrifice. God, I thank you for the believers that I get to do life with. As we sing now, as we praise you through this last song, receive it as an offering from our hearts back to you. We recognize you are the reason we have a hope because you are the living hope, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.